Hey guys, Veronica, Andrew, and Nate here. We are Foodies Watching Movies, a podcast dedicated to awesome movies, great food, and that's about it. Check us out on the JIC Network at www.journeyintocomics.com. Maybe throw some money over to our Patreon so we can eat this week. And now your feature presentation. The following is a Journey into Comics Network production. Doug Jones won, net neutrality lost, Fox and Disney merged, and Star Wars was released. We're going to talk about it all on this week's The Poor Rapport. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to episode 16 of The Poor Rapport. I am your host, and I want to thank you for joining me here today. Now, I know a lot of news has happened since episode 15, and there's really four things I'm going to talk about here in today's episode. But first, I want to kick it off with the Alabama election for the seat that Jeff Sessions left vacant when he was put into Trump's cabinet. Now, as we talked about, there was the Republican candidate, Roy Moore, who was under... Uh, sexual assault allegations about his interactions with uh, a girl as young as 14 as well as some girls in their late teens and it really put republicans at odds because trump put that kind of person he supported him said uh basically don't care about his personality we need a republican vote in this uh in the senate to get these bills passed that i want to push my agenda and Democrats were all very against it, and it basically came down to, is Alabama going to vote the way they have voted for the past couple decades, or if they're going to break from tradition and support someone, a Democrat, who doesn't have this kind of past and the issues that Roy Moore seemed to have. And I was watching the results as they were coming in, and it was looking pretty close for a good part of the evening, and then it was announced that Democratic candidate doug jones won by i think it came out to about one and a, one and a half percent which was ridiculous because for the past 25 years a republican has held those senate seats so this is the first time in my lifetime essentially that we've had a, uh, a democrat who's going to be representing the state of alabama in the senate and I'm really going to go over this article that The Guardian put out um, regarding the election. It said, the title is, A Perfect Storm, How Liberal Millennials and African Americans Delivered a Stunning Alabama's Result. Uh, group that drove Doug Jones' win over Roy Moore and Donald Trump in the Senate election insists Democrat must not simply take credit and relax. Um, so this is kind of, I'm going to go through, it's a kind of a long article, but I think it's as a, it's a great uh, thing to kind of hear about. So this is about a person. So it's uh, Jordan Crenshaw was homeschooled in small town Alabama. You waved at people at stop signs. She recalls your community was very complete, was very completely reflective of your church. It was very conservative upbringing politically and religiously. Crenshaw's father voted for Donald Trump in last year's presidential election, but when his fellow Republican Roy Moore, an accused pedophile, looked on course for victory in this week's U.S. Senate race in Alabama. Crenshaw turned to her husband and said, Can we live here? Can we raise our children here? Thankfully, did not come to that. Maury suffered a stunning defeat by Doug Jones, the first Democrat to take a Senate seat in Alabama for a quarter of a century. At Doug Jones's uh, watch party in the ballroom of a 
Birmingham Hotel, the sense of joy, relief, and release was palpable in hugs, tears, and high fives. It felt like the first time since November 2016 that America had broken the spell of Trump. Which is true. I've said this before, that if if Roy Moore would have gotten elected, that would prove that anyone Trump puts his his support behind, anyone Trump tries to push through, if he can get someone like Roy Moore elected, he can get anyone elected, and that puts the Democrats in a very scary place for the midterm elections in 2018. And getting back to the article, it says, For many, the past year has served up what feels like a bruising, bewildering assault on institutions, decency, and truth itself. When Trump endorsed Moore, a Christian fundamentalist accused of sexual misconduct with teenage girls, it seemed the pit was bottomless. But here, in the unlikeliest of states, came resistance forged from a coalition of women, African-Americans, and university-educated suburbanites, and millennials such as Crenshaw. As millennials, we've made a conscious choice. A disappointing performance among millennials was one of the reasons that Hillary Clinton lost to Trump last year. According to exit polls, Jones won voters aged 18 to 29 by 60% to Roy Moore's 38%. That was a dramatic turnaround from the 2012 election when Barack Obama lost Alabama voters aged 18 to 29 to Mitt Romney by 4 percentage points. With the help of targeted text messages and digital advertising, Democrats enjoyed a particular surge in college areas. In Tuscaloosa County, home to the University of Alabama, Jones won with 57.2% of the vote, about 19 points better than Clinton managed. In Lee County, home of Auburn University, Jones took 57.4%, 21.5 points more than Clinton. Issues such as abortion and gay marriage were losing purchase, says uh, Jake Carnley, founder of a candle shop in Birmingham. This election showed that they, are, that they are fading. The propaganda machine has been able to hijack the conservative agenda by pretending these issues swing on elections when in fact they are already protected by the government. They suggest it's still up in the air when it's not. That priorities have defined to the economy and in this election simple decency. As this administration gets more zany, people have decided whether they're on decency and choose empathy over ignorance, empathy or issues that could really divide us. As millennials, we've made a conscious choice. Uh, Carnley added, I think one reason we are able to choose empathy is that we know gay people and we know black people. We are locking arms with people in this fight and have real stakes in it. And that's perhaps something our parents and grandparents never had. For millennials, it's about being able to put a face and a personality to an issue rather than just an idea. And I think, I'm really not going to go through the rest of this article, but it's uh, definitely worth reading. It's the... Guardian article, Alabama Senate election, Doug joins Roy Moore, uh, Donald Trump is what the link is, or it's the perfect storm, how liberal millennials and African Americans delivered a stunning Alabama result. So I really encourage you to read the rest of that article. It's just a lot to have detail, and I think it's definitely worth reading about. And uh, when it came time for Roy Moore to concede at the end of the night... Roy Moore chose to not concede and said, it's a close margin, we're going to do a refo, we have to uh, trust that, I remember the exact words, but essentially that uh, God uh, God will choose, or God has the answers, or and I think at this point, God has cho- said that you do not belong in the Senate, and he should just concede. And in a recent uh, Time article, uh, Doug Jones has also urged Roy Moore to move on from this Senate race. 
on uh, on Sunday's political talk shows, Senator-elect Doug Jones said, I think it's time to move on. Alabama has spoken. It was a close election. There's no question about that, but elections can be close sometimes. But now it's time to heal. Now it's time to move on and go to the next thing. Moore said in a video released Wednesday, he said that the current vote count does not include military and provisional ballots, and that is why he's waiting on the certification of the votes from Alabama Secretary of State's. The votes are expected to be certified between December 26th and January 3rd, but Alabama Secretary of State John Merrill said it was highly unlikely these ballots would result in any significant change. On Friday, Morrison a fundraising email asking for contribution to his election integrity fund to investigate voter fraud. It writes that the battle is not over. Uh, Jones, who cannot be sworn in until the sen- into the Senate until the votes have been certified, told Tapper he is proceeding as though the votes will certify his victory and is starting to build out his team. He said, we're ready, we're starting to put our team together to take over and try to get in there as soon as possible. So, as I expected, and I think this kind of mirrors what I thought was going to happen if Trump would have lost in 2016. He would have, like, if the results would have been flipped, if Hillary Clinton had won the electoral vote and Trump would have won the popular vote, he would have dug his heels in about, the popular vote is the people have spoken, and I am going to push with everything I have to prove the people's vote right and i can entirely see that happening and i can see here that roy Moore is a similar vein he is not going to concede until the final bit of information is out and that he knows undoubtedly that he lost the election so we'll kind of see how that finally shakes out and we'll know by the end of this year a little after christmas or the beginning of next year so i'll update you on that as i find out more information and i know people were saying that uh a Democrat from Alabama will help swing the tide, but in this recent article um, from another interview with Doug Jones, it says, uh, Senator-elect Doug Jones, don't expect me to vote solidly for Republicans or Democrats. He said in the, um, isn't further in that CNN State of the Union article, or interview with uh, Jake Tapper, he said that noted that Alabama is a deeply red state that turned out for Donald Trump in 2016. He says, your re-election, um, sorry, that's a little... Harder. I'm just going to read it exactly as it's written in the article. It says, Jake Tapper, host of CNN, State of the Union, noted that Alabama is a deeply red state that turned out for Donald Trump in 2016. He said, in quote, your re-election is just in three years, Tapper told Jones. In order to truly represent your state, do you need to consider voting with Republicans on some issues? And Jones replied, of course I do. He said, I mean, look, Jake, one of the problems in American politics right now is, in my opinion, is that everybody thinks because you're a member of one party or another, you're going to vote a certain way. And that should not be the case. It shouldn't ever be the case. I'm going to talk to people on both sides of the aisle, try to figure out what I think is in the best interest of my state in the country. Now, don't expect me to solidly vote Republicans or Democrats. I came up with Senator Howell Heflin from Alabama many years ago. He did always to do the things that he thought was the best interest of his constituents, which is the state of Alabama. And I don't think anybody should depend on, be able to count on my vote for anything. They have to go make sure that I'm looking at it, studying it, I'm going to study all sides. Asked if there is an, asked if there is an issue where Jones might vote with Republicans, he said he would take a close look at the infrastructure bill. Jones also sided with the Trump White House on the question of sexual harassment. When Tapper told Jones if President Trump should resign given the horrific allegations against him, Jones said no. He said, you know, Jake, where I am on the right side is now that those allegations were made before the elections, and so people had an opportunity to judge before the election. I think we need to move on and not get distracted by those issues. 
Let's get on with the real issues that are facing people in this country right now, and I don't think that the president ought to resign at this point. We will see how things go. But certainly those allegations are not new, and he was elected with those allegations at front and center. So, that's kind of interesting. I agree that Trump should have to deal with those allegations, but I think that trying to push a resignation on those grounds is not going to get you anywhere at this point. People elected him knowing about his history, and I think Doug Jones is right that we they should focus on other things and focus on the Mueller investigation and everything else as a stronger means to get uh, an impeachment or a resignation out of Trump. But I think we just need to get him seated and let him choose for himself. I agree that it kind of seems annoying when all these votes come down to every Democrat voting one way and every Republican voting a different way and a few abstaining to not choose sides. It seems a little ridiculous. That's not what we, that's not politics should be. Politics shouldn't be votes that end with someone getting one more vote to pass their thing. It should be, it should be a strong majority, like 75% to get things done. I think that's, we could resolve it so that there's compromise. There's not just passing bills under the cover of night, Paul, like we saw with the Senate tax bill and the uh, Republican tax bill. Or sorry, the Senate tax bill and the House tax bill that we saw from Republicans a couple weeks ago that I talked about in 15. And speaking of bills, we saw that on Thursday. Um, we had some great news in the morning, which I'll talk about next. But we also saw that they voted 3-2 to repeal net neutrality. And I bet you're wondering, how will this repeal affect you? And in this article from Forbes, it says that it's no secret that the Trump administration is pro-business. So far, among other efforts, it is focused on trying to repeal industry regulations that constrain different industries in an effort to facilitate growth. The reason to repeal the net neutrality rules is simply the latest change to hit the headlines, but what exactly is net neutrality and what will the elimination of these rules mean for you? So, what are the rules? These rules required internet service providers, or ISPs, the companies that own and operate the wires and so forth that let people connect to the internet, to provide a level playing field for all content providers. ISPs couldn't, say, charge Netflix extra for streaming movies or prohibit certain content providers that they disagreed with. Every provider has to be treated equally. With the repeal of the net neutrality rules, ISPs will now be able to charge different content providers different amounts and potentially block certain providers as well. For or against what the arguments say, the companies that argued for repeal made the case that Netflix, for example, is much more demanding than, say, a site that just provides a text, or just provides text and should have to pay for the extra usage. They also argued that it costs to provide access to consumers, and ISPs should be compensated for the cost by the content providers. Those against the repeal argue that this will effectively reduce the services available. Many content providers may not be able to pay the fees the ISPs want and raise costs for consumers as the content providers that can pay will certainly want the, to pass the extra costs along to the customers. Here's an analogy. The best way to think about the argument in real-world terms is to consider a supermarket. Supermarkets have limited shelf space and food companies usually pay the supermarket, often quite a lot, for the ability to, to be on those shelves. Special locations such as corners or end caps cost more as they are more visible to the customer and lead to higher sales. Supermarkets argue that shelf space is a limited resource, that they own the real estate and that therefore companies can and should pay for it. And they do. The consequences are that customers pay higher prices as the food companies recover what they paid the supermarket company. 
and have access to fewer choices. That new cereal from the small company probably won't show up in a big chain supermarket for a while, if ever, while your toddler will keep seeing Lucky Charms all down the aisle. There's nothing wrong with this, it is long-standing business practice makes a lot of sense given the limited shelf space available in a supermarket. It also contains the essence of the net neutrality repeal argument. The opponents of the repeal, however, pointed out that shelf space on the internet is not limited and that the only effect of the repeal is to impose an artificial limit in order to create that supermarket pricing power. They also point out that while while consumers have a choice of multiple supermarkets, they often have little or no choice for an ISP. When you combine the scarcity of ISPs with an artificial shortage of space for the content providers, you've been never able to get the equivalent of a new cereal and be stuck with the Lucky Charms alone. Another good comparison is that in that is the recent trend of putting toll lanes, which tend to be less crowded on highways. If you want to pay more, you can go faster, but for the person who doesn't, the driving will be slower. Expect to see a real difference in service from content that can pay and content that can't. So what should consumers expect? Both sides in this argument have valid points. But from a consumer point of view, the effects are likely to be real and material for most of us. Slower service and more limited choices. This can be interpreted as a political stance, but it isn't just simple cause and effect. Now, I know you're thinking this isn't really the end. The net neutrality bill is going to be fought by major corporations like Netflix and Amazon and Google who, trying to push their own streaming service, will have to deal directly with the effects of the repeal of net neutrality when it goes into effect. And it also says, according to this article from ARS Technica, um, there will be a Senate vote to reinstate net neutrality, Schumer says. Congress will block net neutrality repeal, but Democrats face tough odds. So in the article, U.S. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer said he will force a vote on a bill that would reinstate the Federal Communications Commission's net neutrality rules. Legislation to reverse the repeal doesn't need the support of the majority leader, Schumer said during a press conference. We can bring it to the floor and force a vote, so there will be a vote to repeal the rules that the FCC passed. Just a simple majority needed. The Federal Communications Commission voted to repeal its own net neutrality rules last week, and the repeal will take effect 60 days after it is published in the Federal Register. But Congress can overturn agency actions by invoking the Congressional Review Act, or CRA, as it did earlier this year in order to eliminate consumer broadband privacy protections. A successful CRA vote in this case would invalidate the FCC's net neutrality repeal and prevent the FCC from issuing a similar repeal in the future. This would force the FCC to maintain the rules and the related classifications of ISPs as common carriers under Title II of the Communications Act. A CRA vote lets Congress undo regulations with a simple majority without the possibility of a filibuster. As a Washington Post story said in February, It's in our power to do that, and that's the beauty of the CRA rule. Sometimes we don't like them when they use to repeal some of the pro-environmental regulations, but now we can use the CRA to to our, our benefit, and we intend to. The Senate Republicans' majority will be just 51-49 after Alabama Democrat Doug Jones is sworn in. Senator Susan Collins opposed the net neutrality repeal, raising the prospect of a razor-thin vote. Still, the Democrats face long odds. While a few Republicans in the House of Representatives either opposed or expressed skepticism about the net neutrality repeal, Republicans have a 239-193 majority in the House. Finally, President Donald Trump can v- could veto a, a CRA resolution even if it passed both the House and Senate. Republican lawmakers intend to submit their own net neutrality legislation this week. Republican bill could prohibit ISPs from blocking or throttling internet traffic, but it might allow paid prioritization and would not include numerous other consumer protections that the FCC is throwing out. 
Meanwhile, state attorney general from New York, Washington, and other states plan to sue the FCC to overturn the repeal. Besides overturning the federal regulations, the FCC vote attempts to preempt states from issuing their own net neutrality rules. So it looks like even though there was the vote by the FCC, the 3-2 vote, that this repeal and the new legislation is far from over. It looks like this will be a long haul, and I'm really curious to see how this shakes out. That was kind of the... There's been a lot of highs and lows this week coming from news from Doug Jones winning to the net neutrality repeal. And really on the entertainment side is kind of where we have to go next. And that starts on Thursday, which was a big day in a number of ways with the net neutrality repeal. And with the news that we finally get to be official, which is the deal that Disney will buy 21st Century Fox assets for $52.4 billion dollars. An historic Hollywood merger. This will also lead to Disney CEO Bob Iger extending his contract through 2021 to oversee the integration. So, key elements of this transaction unveiled Thursday morning, this past Thursday, are that the deal values the 21st Century Fox assets in the transaction at $66.1 billion, including $13.7 billion in 21st Century Fox debt, or $28 a share. The enterprise value of this deal is $69 billion. Disney chairman Bob Iger has extended his contract with the company for another two years through the end of 2021 in order to oversee the integration of the assets. 21st Century Fox owners, our shareholders will receive 0.2745 Disney shares for each Fox share held, giving Fox shareholders about 25% of Disney. 21st Century Fox will then spin off Fox Broadcasting Company, Fox Sports, Fox News, Fox television stations, and a handful of other assets into a new company that will have revenue of $10 billion and earnings of about $2.8 billion. The 20th Century Fox lot in Century City will also remain with the spin-off Fox company. 21st Century Fox will continue to pursue its acquisition of the remaining 61% stake of Euro Satcaster Sky that is that it does not already own with the intention of Disney taking it over when the Disney-Fox transaction is completed. Disney expects to realize $2 billion in cost savings from combining Disney and Fox's overlapping businesses within two years of the deal's closing. Disney expects the regulatory review of the acquisition to take as long as 18 months, which is kind of intense. We've been talking about this for a while. There's been hints going on since uh, late October to mid-November, and actually this kind of coming to fruition. I know there's still an uphill battle. We have to see it go through the antitrust issues have to go through the whole process of merging companies and dealing with overlapping and personnel issues and so i bet you're wondering what does disney get out of this aside from the obvious so what fox owned was like as far as it says in the article for example it owns a studio for example that produces the abc hit show modern family now, Disney will take control of the program and benefit from syndication and other distribution of the series. The 20th Century Fox Studio has the rights to make movies for Marvel characters like the X-Men. The results of the deal struck before Disney purchased Marvel in 2009. Fox also controls right to the, the one Star Wars film that's not under Disney's Aegis, the first movie in the franchise, Star Wars A New Hope. I'm really going to dive into the, uh, kind of the other details about this merger in this article from Vulture. says, Six Things We Know and Don't Know About the Disney-Fox Merger. So, with the Walt Disney Company's announcement Thursday that it had reached a mega deal to buy most of the assets of 21st Century Fox, Hollywood watchers have been working overtime trying to parse the meager's overall entertainment industry impact. 
Will it yield a Reese's Your Chocolates in My Peanut Butter? Corporate synergy between two behemoth TV movie internet companies? Or mark the birth of a terrifying new media monopoly? And will the FCC, which under the Trump administration has turned a surprisingly cold shoulder to mergers, put a stop to the whole thing? There are plenty of unanswered questions, but there are a few broad areas where certain outcomes seem more likely. So, one thing. Avatar joins the Mouse House along with all Marvel properties. Thanks to the long-standing, immensely complex licensing deals, Fox has had exclusive access to a number of beloved characters from the Marvel Comics canon that do not appear anywhere in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, already controlled by Disney. But in a development vulture, but in a development vulture explores in greater depth here, Disney chief Bob Iger has been quick to point out that the new pact provides the company with the opportunity to reunite the X-Men, Fantastic Four, and Deadpool with the Marvel family under one roof and create a richer, more complex worlds of interrelated characters and stories. Or as Ryan Reynolds tweeted yesterday, Time to uncork that explosive sexual tension between Deadpool and Mickey Mouse. Moreover, the merger means Disney grabs the rights to a number of other Fox-controlled film franchises, including Alien, Planet of the Apes, Predator, and even Independence Day. But chief among them will be director James Cameron's envelope-pushing $3 billion grossing Avatar in its impending sequels, which the new Disney Fox can exploit across all media platforms as well as its theme parks division, in which, in what now seems like a precisely preemptive move, in May, Disney's Animal Kingdom Resort in Florida opened The World of Avatar, an immersive 12-acre fantasy land based around the film's bioluminescent forests, floating mountains, and otherworldly smurf-hued Navi aliens that has already become one of the park's hottest attractions. And over the last two years, Disney has dominated the year-end box office with 2015 Star Wars The Force Awakens, and last year's Rogue One, estimated to have pulled 40-60% of around a billion dollars in ticket sales from that time frame. So with the next three Avatar installments set for release in December of 2020, 2021, 2024, and 2025, Disney can continue to dominate winter holiday movie fare for years to come. Another great thing, which I know a lot of my friends are personally excited about, was that Disney will now own all of the Star Wars movies. Fox's earlier incarnation, 20th Century Fox, distributed the original two Star Wars movie trilogies, and for generations, the studio's snare, drum, and horn fanfare has become an inextricable a part of the viewing experience as John Williams' score. While Disney acquired Lucasfilm in 2012 for $4 billion, Fox held on to the home video and digital distribution rights of those original films in perpetuity, as well as complete and permanent distribution rights in 1977's first Star Wars installment, also known as Episode Four: A New Hope. All of that goes to Disney in the deal, so for Star Wars obsessives, the most significant development of the new Disney Fox will be an all-but-inevitable release of what's been called the Total Package, a complete Blu-ray DVD box set of all of the Star Wars films. Pent-up fan demand for a product like this can't be overestimated, and it's set to become a significant revenue stream come the 2019 release of Star Wars Episode Nine, the conclusion of the long-running sci-fi serial's third trilogy. And speaking for myself personally outside of this article... If I could get a release on Blu-ray of the three theatrical cuts of the original trilogy, along with all the other movies in one concise, complete box set, I would play... They could put really any price tag on that that's realistic, and I would pay for it. Also from this deal, Hulu... uh, Until now, Hulu's operated as a joint venture controlled by three big conglomerate stakeholders. Comcast, NBC Universal, Fox, and Disney. 
and one smaller partner, Time Warner, which last year bought 10% of the company. But once the Disney-Fox deal is done, Disney will have a controlling stick in Hulu and an incentive to dramatically bulk up the streamer's offerings, and turn it into an even bigger rival to Netflix. During the build-up to the merger, there had been some uncertainty as to whether Disney might simply ditch its previously announced plans to build a family-focused version of Netflix, and instead concentrate on making Hulu its big streaming play. But Iger today said he wants to do both. Our goal is to direct consumers... The direct consumer front in the United States is to go out with essentially a family-oriented product with Disney and Pixar and Marvel and Lucas that's going to launch in 2019, a sports product from ESPN in 2018, and will probably be more adult-oriented products from Hulu. Iger told CNBC's David Farber, adding Disney would give consumers the ability to buy all three or to buy them individually. That's just more incentive. You can have all of the catalog from Fox and Disney and three plays that you can pay one fee for, that might be tempting for a lot of people and might get people to cut Netflix in favor of that. So be interested to see what that ends up being and what those price points are set at. Uh, Iger's comments offer the tantalizing possibility that Hulu could become not Netflix, a service which aims to offer something for everyone, but a more focused streamer aimed at delivering the sort of premium award bait content seen seen on HBO, FX, and to a lesser degree, ABC. Think American Crime or Modern Family at its peak. In fact, with FX and FX Productions headed over to Disney as a part of today's deal, it's not hard to imagine the brain trust that has made FX so successful, headed up by the FX network chief John Landgraf taking over creative control of Hulu. Think of it, the first streaming outlet to win a Best Series Emmy. Essentially merging with the first basic cable network to win a Best Actor Emmy. Landgraf has already been moving FX toward a future where consumers pay directly for its content. This year, partner with Comcast for FX Plus, which lets folks pay $6 a month to watch current and past FX shows without commercials, giving him control of an even bigger playground, one with a proven digital infrastructure able to better monetize shows like You're the Worst and The Americans, better than old-school cable seems like a no-brainer. There are plenty of roadblocks to such scenario, however. Landgraf may have no desire to take on a bigger footprint with Hulu, or to dilute the brands he spent so long building. It's also not entirely clear Disney can do whatever it wants with Hulu. Even if it will have a controlling stake in the streamer, analysts such as BTIG's Rich Greenfield argue Comcast, for example, could veto any major shift in direction. Disney will not be able to make major structural changes to Hulu following the closing of the Fox transaction without Comcast NBC's consent. He also wrote in an analyst note this week in his interview with Faber, uh, it's a little bit early right now, what direction we'll take. With Hulu perhaps a concession to the complexities of the streamer's current ownership deal, still Iger suggested Hulu's other owners might be convinced. We think it's going to provide Comcast with an interesting opportunity as well as we seek to grow Hulu in even more compelling ways. It should also be noted that Hulu's current management has already been anticipating future changes. Even though it's been adding more library content from partners like Fox and NBC, it's also been beefing up its own slate of originals with an eye on the possibility that a few years from now, might be able to offer consumers next-day episodes of shows from ABC, NBC, and Fox. This year also saw Hulu more from a straight-ahead streamer to a more full-service video provider. Hulu with live TV essentially makes it a digital cable company, on par with YouTube TV or DirecTV now. These changes should allow Hulu to survive even if Iger can't fully realize the visions for Hulu he hinted at today. Award season player Fox Searchlight could make Disney more prestige 
less on-brand for Disney is Fox Specialty Films Division Fox Searchlight, which has developed into an award season hothouse over the last few years, releasing such Best Picture Oscar winners as 12 Years a Slave, Birdman, and Slumdog Millionaire. Earlier this week, uh, Searchlight scored multiple Golden Globe nominations for three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, and Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water, as well as seven SAG Award nominations for its 2017 releases. A respected player in the indie sector and dominant acquisitions force at the Sundance Film Festival, the specialty label is known for finding and cultivating quirky low-budget films into cultural sensations. This is well outside what has been Disney's normal purview up to this point, tentpole fair and four-quadrant crowd-pleasers in the Pixar, Marvel, Lucasfilm fame. Towards the end, Disney has largely moved itself from the award scrum aside from animation, best animated feature Oscars for Big Hero 6, Brave, Frozen, Inside Out, etc. In technical achievements, a Best Makeup Academy Award for the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, difficult as it may be to imagine Disney releasing Searchlight's lo-fi Sundance certified hits like Patty Cake and Step. However, the most obvious upside would be the company's streaming service, set to launch in 2019, which will need a steady supply of prestige product that wants to make a viable run at Netflix. That said, Iger has refused to say whether Searchlight will continue to function as a distinct division under Disney management. Another thing is the Fox network, as we know it, is probably over. A few weeks ago, when the Disney-Fox deal was still in the rumor stages, we argued such a pact would mean drastic changes to Fox Broadcasting Company. Nothing Murdoch said today changes our theory. Sure, the Fox founder talked about the idea of FBC buying entertainment programming from an independent studios, such as Sony, Lionsgate, or Warner Brothers. But Murdoch and his sons, Lachlan and James, are also emphasized over and over that the, Fox, the new Fox would be focused on sports, news, and live events. That seems to be a broad hint that, no, an FBC without a major studio partner such as 20th Century Fox TV doesn't make much sense in a world where the major value of scripted programming is the back end. So that requires a network to own the shares, the shows it airs. This doesn't mean FBC won't have any scripted shows a couple years from now. It's NFL, World Series, and other sports rights will give it a great platform to promote a couple of big, male-focused original series every season. It could all snap up produce some low-cost scripted programming. Think, think something like sci-fi original movies or BBC's Orphan Black. Content that pays for itself via ad revenue that helps maintain the value of Fox's local TV stations. Ratings for FBC animated stalwarts, The Simpsons, and Family Guy have fallen sharply over the last few years. Like most everything else on TV, even of, as the show's production budget remains sky-high, Fox has dutifully renewed the shows. However, because its 20th Century Fox TV unit owns them and is able to extract millions of dollars in profits from selling reruns to cable networks and local stations, more than making up for the losses on the network level. Once FBC and 20th are divorced, however, it is hard to see how the new FBC makes the economics work or why Disney would want two of its new crown jewels airing somewhere else. In the short term, not much will probably change. The Simpsons has a deal in place with FBC to keep keeping on the network through the 2018-2019 season, which happens to coincide with the show's 30th anniversary. At that point, it's possible Disney will find a way to move the show to either ABC or one of its new streaming services, perhaps producing fewer than 22 episodes each year. FXX, which is also headed to Disney, already airs reruns of the show and operates a Simpsons streaming app. Or maybe the creative team behind the show will simply decide 30 years is finally enough and walk away. Perhaps working with Disney on a new way to keep the Simpsons brand alive. Side note, NBC Universal currently has a deal for the theme park rights to 
The Simpsons. Don't expect The Simpsons right at Disney World anytime soon. As for Family Guy and Bob's Burgers, they are much younger shows and less expensive, with Bob's actually turning into something of a powerhouse on basic cable in recent years. Disney would have plenty of incentives to keep making originals of both, either for ABC or one of its new streaming services. Sorry, that is a lot of information to talk about, and I know you're probably like, why are you reading this all to me? There's a lot to go through in this merger, and I know we're not going to see big moves in this for at least 18 months if there's no other issues. It's going to take a lot of time and effort to really merge these two companies and get the rights and everything melded together. So we'll see something within the next decade, but I don't have optimists that we'll see noticeable changes in the next two years. Despite some of my friends saying that like Marvel have rights to the X-Men for movies next year or even the year after. We'll kind of have to wait and see, but I'm hopeful that this will move smoothly and we'll see the full effects of these changes sooner rather than later. And one thing we should probably talk about is that Democrats are calling for hearings on Disney's bid to buy 20th Century Fox, which is kind of what I was fearing about the whole antitrust issues. Uh, key voice on competition and consumer protection fear Disney's latest deal would only solidify its dominance in entertainment, granting it too many major box office franchises and too much power over regional sports networks and streaming video services. Uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar said, I'm concerned about the impact of this transaction on American consumers. We'll kind of have to see how this shakes out, if this has a lot of regulatory issues with the government or if the Justice Department seeks to block it the same way they did for the... Uh, Time Warner, AT&T uh, deal. So we'll kind of see how this all shakes out. I'm still optimistic, but things have changed before. I know one thing that a lot of people were excited about is that a recent, uh, kind of older interview between Hugh Jackman said the only way he'll reprise his role of Wolverine is in an Avengers movie. And now that X-Men are now presumably going to be in the purview and under the control of the mcu would hugh jackman come back for that and in an interview while promoting his new movie the greatest showman he was asked about his statement speaking to collider the ultra and i said it's interesting because for the whole 17 years i kept thinking that would be so great like i would love to see particularly iron man and the hulk and wolverine together and every time i saw an avengers movie i would just see wolverine in the middle of all of them like punching them all on the head but I was like, oh, well, that's not going to happen. And it was interesting, just when I first saw the headlines, it was just obvious the possibility of it, and who knows what's going to happen. Obviously, I was like, hang on. But I think, unfortunately, the ship has sailed for me. But for someone else, I would like to see Wolverine in there. So, looks like Hugh Jackman didn't exactly say he wouldn't do it, but he doesn't seem likely that the most likely they're going to cast a new actor to represent Wolverine for a new generation under the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And now I guess the bad news, or more of the bad news on the Disney-Fox merger, is that it could see up to 10,000 jobs cut. According to this IGN article, a Wall Street analyst predicted that up to 10,000 jobs may be lost as a result of the Disney's pending buyout of 21st Century Fox. There are widespread expectations of cost savings following this buyout in the realm of $2 billion, owing mostly to the fact that there is a high degree of overlap between Fox and Disney operations. The most likely place for these savings to be made is job cuts, with estimates of anywhere between 5,000 and 10,000 jobs being lost. 
Uh, the Hollywood Reporter quotes on one anonymous Fox employee concerned for their future, saying that they've only been given half-hearted assurances about their future that no one believes. Their concerns can be backed up by the letter to employees, which talks about finding opportunities for staff as well as ensuring anyone in- impacted is well taken care of. It's important to note that deals of this nature and size take time to go into effect. There are various regulatory bodies involved, and the deal will face some scrutiny before it completes. The buyout would make Disney arguably the most powerful movie studio of all time, and as such is being closely examined as its progress, not least by Congress, where Democratic members have called for hearings examining the deal more closely. It'll be some time before we know the full impact of the buyout. So we'll kind of see, but I figure two major studios have a lot of positions that do overlap, and there's probably going to be a lot of consolidating and job elimination, or people being pulled from one studio or another to fill those voids, and the lesser of two competing positions being let go or forced into retirement or however they decide to resolve that. So not great news, but something we're kind of stuck with going forward. And I guess really with that, I should go into the biggest news of the day before I kind of wrap up. Still with Disney, still with uh, everything that's going on, and is that Thursday night we saw the first... uh, the Star Wars The Last Jedi was officially released. And I've seen it. I've seen it in IMAX, and I saw it at um, on the Dolby screen at the AMC. So I've seen it in two different theaters. I've seen it now. So I've seen it twice. I kind of another a stronger understanding of what the movie was. And I talked about it on Foodies, which will drop tomorrow. So you can wait around to hear my kind of review on that when I talk about it with Veronica and Nate. And I know you've already listened to Nate and the other guys talk of Star Wars on the JSC episode, which dropped yesterday. So it's going to be very Star Wars week, and I know I really won't save time there, but I'm going to focus on... This is the poor report. We kind of sometimes go into more of the negative. So I'm going to talk about a lot of the fan criticism that we saw for this movie. Because on Rotten Tomatoes, the last Friday currently sits at a 56% approval rating. Compared to the critics' rating, which is at 93%. So, and we've already seen a statement that was released earlier yesterday that uh, Johnson, the director, uh, Ryan Johnson, released a statement saying, Johnson was initially asked about his feelings on the take that last Friday is nothing like the original trilogy, but he went deeper into the experience and feelings with that criticism. He says, having been a Star Wars fan my whole life and having spent most of my life on the other side of the curb and in that fandom, it softens the blow a little bit. I'm aware that my own experience that, first of all, the fans are so passionate, they care so deeply, sometimes they care very violently at me on Twitter. But it's because they care about these things and it hurts when you're expecting something specific and you don't get it from something that you love. It always hurts, so I don't take it personally if a fan reacts negatively and lashes out on me on Twitter. That's fine. It's my job to be there for that. Like you said, every fan has a list of stuff they want a Star Wars movie to be. And they don't want movies to be... And what they don't want a Star Wars movie to be. You're going to find very few fans of there whose lists line up. I also know they're in the same way the original movies were personal for Lucas. Lucas never made a Star Wars movie by sitting down and thinking, what do the fans want to see? And I know if I wrote wondering what the fans would want, as tempting as that is, it wouldn't work. Because people would still be shouting at me, fuck you, you ruined Star Wars. And I would make a bad movie. And ultimately that's one thing nobody wants. Let me just add that 8-9% of the reactions I've gotten from Twitter have been really lovely. 
There have been a lot of joy and love from fans when I talk about the negative stuff. That's not the full picture of the fans at all. So Ryan Johnson just came out and said, like, you can't please everyone. And I made the movie that I thought everyone wanted to see. And it's true. A lot of people want something different. I've seen people who've hated the movie when I fell through a Twitter hole about it. I've seen, I've talked to friends and stuff who've loved the movie. And I've seen people who are like, I thought the movie was great, but there were a handful of things I didn't like. And I actually talked to uh, one of my uh, older friends who's a big Star Wars fan. And he actually shared this article, which I want to talk about, which is the top 13 reasons why some Star Wars fans hate The Last Jedi. So the 13 is Porgs have nothing to do with the story. Porgs, the seabird creatures native to the planet of Octu, have been the most divisive part of The Last Jedi since they were revealed at the film's first behind-the-scenes reel. Some love how cute they are, even inspiring some fan art and shirts right off the bat. Wallers thinks they're just some cheap marketing gimmick for the inevitable batch of merchandise. While some fans enjoyed their presence since they're funny and cute, they absolutely have nothing to do with the film's plot. Many would compare them to the Ewoks in Return of the Jedi, but at least the Ewoks actually got involved in the battle versus the Empire. You can take it that the Porgs and the film story won't change, but hey, at least they made Chewie's scenes more entertaining, especially the one in the Millennium Falcon chase scene. Which I would agree, but I also learned through kind of my research was that the island where they filmed uh, for the planet Octu is actually a preserved island that actually is kind of overrun with puffins, which are native to that island. Puffins actually look a lot like porgs, and instead of having to go through after the fact and digitally removing every single puffin out of the island set, they chose to add a few digital creatures of porgs, and then that way when they do long shots of the island, you see little white and orange and brown birds kind of flying in the distance. You're just assuming they're porgs, but they're actually just puffins that they've left in the scene. So, kind of a way to work on an issue and create something that's easily very marketable and very merchandise-heavy. And kind of moving on from that, they said, um, number 12 was, wait, there's a hidden exit in the Resistance base and crate after all? And this is all spoilers, um, kind of moving forward that you know there's more about this. So, during The Last Jedi's climactic battle in crate, the Resistance members are faced with a huge problem. How are they going to escape the First Order after being trapped in a base? As the First Order prepares to fire a powerful cannon at the base's giant reinforced door, they made it clear there's apparently no way out of the base, no other exit but the front though that same reinforced door that the First Order is about to destroy. Then right after Luke shows up the st to stall the First Order, poof, there's an exit after all. Crate's crystal foxes lead them to an exit blocked by boulders, and of course Rey makes it on time to clear their path and escape. Although it's considered minor compared to the other problems ranked higher on this list, some critics point out the flaw in the final act, calling it a result of lazy writing. Well, at least those crystal foxes are not as useless as the porks. Yes, it was kind of convenient there was a back, but really if this was built into a cave, there's probably other access points. The rocks being the way they were was kind of weird. I feel like it should have been a tighter fit. They were called more digging and more kind of hands-on to get out, but the computers of the plot had to move forward, so it had to be something that looks like something that caved in that had to be just moved with the force. Uh, number 11, no BB-8 versus BB-90 showdown in the final version. BB-9E was the First Order's evil version of BB-8, which is an all-black droid that looked very similar to BB-8. So, it showed up in a brief scene in the last Jedi, but fans were expecting to have a, some showdown against them. 
Sadly, BB9E was only seen looking at BB8's direction, but they didn't actually face off. Maybe there's a deleted scene between the two droids. The clip revealed exclusively for Verizon's promo turned out to be just a promo spot, not an actual clip from the film. So that disappointed some fans a bit. BB9E was pretty much the last Jedi's equivalent to Captain Phasma in The Force Awakens. Overhyped prior to the film's release, but so little screen time. Maybe it'll have a chance to shine in Episode 9, but for now you can just enjoy the Verizon spot. Luke Skywalker and Kylo Ren's weak backstory. In The Last Jedi, Luke keeps blaming himself for training Kylo Ren in the past. They have an ongoing... They have an ongoing he started dispute about whose fault this is. Some fans and critics thought the this part of the story was ridiculous. Seeing a flashback of Luke Skywalker trying to kill a relative just looks pathetic. It's a shallow reason to exile himself rather than to help Resistance save the galaxy. The film didn't even reveal how Supreme Leader Snoke influenced Kylo Ren. What about the Knights of Ren? I thought we were going to see them in the sequel. Maybe episode 9 will show them at this point. Why should fans care? Numbered line, Leia's Mary Poppins moment. Right after the First Order attacked the Resistance ship where Leia was, Leia is seen floating in space, but since she's a Skywalker, she will unconsciously move through space, Mary Poppins style, to save herself. This is the one of the most surprising scenes in the film, and I actually thought it was cool, but some fans have expressed how much they hate that scene online. Some argue that there's no way Leia could have used the Force since it takes mental concentration to use it, but she was unconscious at that time. And some hate that scene because it just looked ridiculous. Nonetheless, Leia's role is still more interesting in The Last Jedi compared to her role in The Force Awakens, but many would agree that the film failed to give the Skywalker siblings a proper send-off. Number 8. The First Order's remaining leaders are weak threats. Now that Supreme Leader Snoke is dead, spoilers, it's up to Kylo Ren and General Hux to lead the First Order to wipe out the Resistance and the Jedi. Sure, the First Order may be winning the ongoing war against the Resistance, but it looks like Kylo Ren and General Hux are too easy to take down. Since the last Jedi will lead up to the final film of the trilogy with episode 9, it feels like the stakes are not as high as the antagonists are not as problematic enough. Compare that to Darth Vader's presence at the end of Empire Strikes Back. Yep, Kylo Ren and Hux are tiny threats compared to him. They don't even get along, so they're probably going to turn on each other in the sequel. It's just hard to picture how these villains will emerge victorious in episode 9. The last Jedi feels more like a finale than a middle act, and that's not good for the saga. J.J. Abrams will... Have an epic challenge to make Episode Nine win back the hearts of the fans. Number 7. Why didn't the First Order fleets destroy the Resistance ships right away? In the last Jedi, General Hux and his Star Destroyers have to chase General Leia and the, res- and the Escape Resistance fleet. This is considered to be the slowest chase scene in a Star Wars film ever, and the first as the First Order just wait for the Resistance to run off gas while firing at them every once in a while. The First Order had massive battle cruisers with laser cannons and other secret weaponry, and yet the only ping the Resistance one blast, one laser blast at a time. Yeah, that was something that was kind of weird to me too. They could have easily just used all of their might and blew all of them out of the sky, and no problem. I mean, if they were able to waste a ton of ammunition to blow up just Luke Skywalker, then why did they just willy-nilly fire on the ships after they blew up after the individual ships started running out of gas? Uh, number six, slapstick comedy. A common complaint among those who disliked The Last Jedi was its slapstick humor and starting the film off with an atypical joke. Seeing Luke toss away the lightsaber after Ray hands it to him seemed like a bad joke that just didn't fit his character. Kyle Smith of the National Review summed it up the best way in his review. Why is Luke, previously the most earnest guy in the galaxy, letting loose with acerbic wisecracks? 
When Ray hands Luke her precious lightsaber, he tosses it over his shoulder like an empty can of Dr. Pepper. He mocks it as a laser sword, laser sword while Ray asks to explain the Force, calls it a power that makes things float. The tone here is similar to that of the self-aware jocularity of the progressively less successful 2009-2016 Star Trek series, whose concept is apparently being ditched in favor of an R-rated reboot overseen by Quentin Tarantino. You can go with self-mockery if you want, but if it amounts to burning your seed corn to warm your hands, get a cheap laugh poking fun at the mythology, and its power won't be there when you need it. What about Domhnall Gleeson's punching bag Hux? While some see it as comedy is consistent with the franchise's legacy of Wisecrack, some thought the jokes were far too con- were too contemporary and forced. Director Ryan Johnson saw this criticism coming. Speaking to Vanity Fair during the film's LA premiere, he said, I knew the movie was going to get darker in some spots just because of what we had to do. It was really important to me to, at the very outset, make a bold statement of what we're going that we're going to have fun here also. Relax, you can laugh with it also. This is just isn't going to be a dirge. That was the one thing I was most nervous about. You can never know until you put it in front of a big crowd of strangers if the jokes play or not. So I was very relieved when we got the laughs. Oh, that very first scene, that was really the one that was just... I was holding my girlfriend's hand tightly when the, that came up. Then I relaxed with the audience, got it, and started rolling with it. It's so important to me because that sets the tone and the exception that, ah, okay, there's going to be laughs in this movie. Number five, why didn't Vice Admiral Holdo just tell Poe about her plan from the beginning? While the Resistance is trying to survive the slow chase in space, there's a much ado about Poe. Talking with issue, taking issue with Vice Admiral Amelin Holdo, who is played by Laura Dern, after she assumes command of the Resistance in Leia's absence. Seems that Holdo's plan is just to keep going along until her ships run out of fuel. It may think that she's a traitor and the reason why the First Order was able to track the Resistance ships. Of course, Poe would be concerned about her leadership, but it turns out she's actually as a plan to secretly evacuate everyone in the shuttlecraft that would lead them to an abandoned rebel base on the Minecraft planet Crate. Sorry, Mineral Planet, not Minecraft. So why doesn't she reveal to Poe about her plan rather than lead him to an eventual mutiny? And was Holdo's suicidal hyperspace mission necessary? Couldn't she just set the ship on autopilot and use an escape pod herself. This part of the film is just dumb, according to that. I I really loved the uh, the going into uh, hyperspace, into those ships, and have that big silent moment. That was just very powerful, and that silence really added to the feel of that. It does seem like it opened kind of a Pandora's box, because if that was something they could do, why wouldn't... When there was the Death Star, they just send a bunch of ships going at that speed and just crashing through the Death Star to blow it up and just sacrificing themselves like kamikaze pilots. But that we'll kind of see how that plays out in 9. Um, number 4. Ray's parents are just nobodies. The true identity of Ray's parents is one of the biggest mysteries J.J. Abrams brought up in Star Wars The Force Awakens. And there's a bunch of theories surrounding that. Fans were excited to know the truth in The Last Jedi, especially after Ryan Johnson said that the answer will be revealed in the film. But to many, the answer is difficult to swallow. The revelation that Ray's parents are nobodies, junkers who sold their daughter for alcohol money, was disappointing for many fans who expected a lot more. Some fans believe that Kylo Ren's story about Ray's parents isn't true, and that we'll find out who they really are in Episode Nine when Abrams returning to that film. Who knows? Maybe he'll provide a more satisfying revelation. J.J. Abrams did a great job setting up the mysteries in The Force Awakens, and it looks like Ryan Johnson took the lazy way out when it comes to providing the answers to those mysteries. Some fans felt fooled after seeing The Last Jedi. 
The theorists waited for a couple of years only to find out that those questions never mattered and if Johnson just threw away what J.J. Abrams built. I'll agree with some of that. It seems like some things were just disposed of out of convenience or to serve the greater story that Ryan Johnson was telling. Still didn't hate a lot of it, but I know we're waiting to see if Rey was related to Obi-Wan Kenobi or if she was a Skywalker or if she was someone related to the overall arc. I know if friends would say like maybe he was the reincarnation of Anakin or was born of the Force the same way Anakin was without kind of a... Uh, a virgin uh, conception. So we'll kind of see if that turns out to be a lie or if there's more to that story. But that was something I know a lot of people were kind of shocked by that she was nothing to the greater story. Uh, number three, Luke Skywalker gets force ghosted. So Mark Hamill's performance in Star Wars Last Jedi is brilliant, but many fans didn't like how the film approached his character. It's clear that Ryan Johnson wanted to do something entirely new with the character and not just rehash what has come before. But in avoiding that trap, it seemed that Johnson failed to meet what fans hoped for in regards to Luke. Sure, he was able to successfully stall the First Order by manifesting a force projection of himself across the galaxy, but that's about it. Ray's training with him was weak. Luke doesn't pull a Star Destroyer out of orbit using the force. He doesn't fight in a spectacular lightsaber du duel. Hell, he didn't even leave Ock 2. He just died quietly, vanishing while looking at the binary sun setting on the horizon. Which, by the way, I thought was a beautiful scene. It really took his whole character arc full circle from the beginning of uh, A New Hope to the end of The Last Jedi with him. So I'll disagree with their, with the article statement on that. Back to the article, even Mark Hamill himself disagreed with Ryan Johnson's take on Luke. He told Vanity Fair back in May, I at one point had to say to Ryan, I pretty much fundamentally disagree with every choice you've made for this character. Now having said that, I have gotten it off my chest, and my job now is to take what you've created and do my best to realize your vision. Back in June, Hamill walked back those remarks, telling Variety that he, quote, got in trouble for how inartfully phrased the statement was. What I was was surprised at how he saw Luke, and it took me a while to get around to his way of thinking. Once I was there, it was a thrilling experience, and I hope it will be for the audience, too. And right before the last day of premiere, Hamill was still expressing doubt on Johnson's characterization of Luke. It's time for the last day to end? Are you kidding me? Hamill said, re reiterating what he told Mashable. I'm just saying, what could have happened between the last time we saw him and now for t him to be that way? Even if it's the worst thing in the world, I said to Johnson, Jedis don't give up. While Ryan Johnson recently said that Luke's demise was necessary to give focus on the new characters, Hamill's still throwing doubt about Johnson's take. He said, quote, Well, I'm still in denial, Hamill joked. I think he transported somewhere else. Number two. That Canto subplot with Finn and Rose. While the Resistance fleet is trapped in a slow chase of the First Order led by General Hux and Supreme Leader Snoke, Finn and Rose go on a side mission to find a master hacker in Canto Bite, the Abu Dhabi Las Vegas Golden Saucer version of the galaxy far, far away. This controversial subplot has been criticized for having little impact on the film's plot, but that's not the only reason why some believe that the Canto Bite plot was unnecessary. There also seems to be a lack of emotional growth in Finn and Rose's quest. Several characters go on inner journeys on in The Last Jedi and come out the other side changed in some way. And Finn is definitely not one of them. That's why the kissing scene between the two characters in Crate felt somewhat forced. It seemed that Ryan Johnson just decided to include a Cloud City-like scene in the film without giving it much significance to the whole story. The Cantina Bite plot featured a spectacular chase sequence with llama creatures in a glitzy setting of the wealthy who profit by selling weapons to the First Order and the Resistance. 
but also had some dumb moments. So they really get jailed for a parking violation? Did BB-8 really overcome an enemy with a fusillade of poker chips? Or all the jail of all the jailmates Finn and Rose had, they had the one they exactly needed to escape. Bene, Bene, Benicio del Toro's character DJ, and how did Finn and Rose even manage to escape the space chase undetected and make it on time? Sure, the side mission gave Finn more purpose to the story. His role in the Last Jedi would probably be more boring without it. Encanto Bite is an interesting new world introduced in the Star Wars lore, but the film could exist without it. And number one, Supreme Leader Snoke is dead. That's the big spoiler that I think upset a lot of people. One of the film's biggest surprises comes when Supreme Leader Snoke dies at the hand of his apprentice Kylo Ren when faced with the prospect of murdering Rey. At Snoke's command, the former Ben Solo instead decided to plant a lightsaber blade right into his master's sides. Fans have spent two years since The Force Awakens theorizing about Snoke's mysterious origin. Was he a descendant of Emperor Palpatine? Was he Darth Plagueis, Palpatine's master? Was he Ezra Bridger from the Rebels animated series, all deformed and grown up? How did he become so powerful in the Force and end up the leader of the First Order? A lot of the fan theories actually made more sense than what happened, but some would argue that the original trilogy, when the first, when the original trilogy first came out, fans didn't know a lot about the Emperor. We learn more about his backstory in the prequel trilogy, so why is that this a big deal? Fans are just upset about Snoke's surprising death and his lack of backstory, but also how he was killed. Snoke is proven to be way more powerful than Rey or Kylo Ren. He could do Force Lightning, an advanced technique that Kylo Ren can't do. If Snoke is truly the master of the Force, how did he not notice the danger of Rey's lightsaber? Seeing him die that way is truly disappointing. At least give him a cool battle sequence against Luke or Rey before dying just like that. And just said, seeing everything J.J. Abrams built in the Force Awakens reduced to ashes in the sequel as if Johnson didn't care about them. Imagine if Voldemort in the Harry Potter franchise was ultimately killed by Severus Snape, and Harry Potter never had the chance to shine. That's pretty much Snoke's death. So that was their article, and there's some stuff that I may have agreed with on my initial viewing, but on my second viewing didn't really matter as much. I really just enjoyed the story. And the film also left some big questions, and I can go to this, uh, the io9 article regarding the 24 biggest questions. And they have their own answers here, but I'll kind of give my own answers instead, just to kind of move the story along. It's already over an hour of show. Um, it says, who's the broom kid at the end of the movie? Do you remember there's the kid that they run into on Canto Bite who worked in the stables with those, uh, fog ears? Um, and you see at the very end of the movie shows him leave the room after kind of getting an argument with looks like his slave owner or whoever is in charge of these small children and he goes out to sweep and he uses the force to pick up the broom and then you see him sweeping up and you see him look up and see a star shooting in the distance or a ship and you see him he has the ring that rose gave him that shows the rebel logo when you turn it you see this the culmination of the finale play and you see him lift up his broom to look kind of like a like a lightsaber to really bring the story home that anyone can be anyone. Someone from these low beings can become the next best Jedi. And it kind of to see if we're going to see that this kid will return. If, if we have a time jump between eight and nine, the, what we didn't have between seven and eight, and maybe Ray is now taking on pupils or something to challenge uh, the First Order in that way, or to take on Kylo Ren. We'll kind of just see how that shakes out, or if that's just a nice way to say um, you can become anything that you have, an, I guess, an inclination for. 
Uh, another question is Ray really a Jedi now? Will she teach others to be that Jedi? Which is kind of what I talked about before. Now that Luke has gone and said that she is the last Jedi, um, she didn't really get a whole lot of training from Luke, but her talents are definitely in. Maybe if we have a time jump, we'll see her grow into the abilities to control them fully. What was up with Luke's projection of himself onto crates? Um. I just want to go with uh, their answer here. Uh, the last day shows us many new uses for the Force. One of them is that Luke somehow projects a version of himself onto the planet crate, all the way from the planet Octu, to help save the Resistance. So this is a new Jedi power, at least in the movies. It is. Um, and it's more than an elaborate mind trick. He projects his projection has physicality. We see it when he gives Han's dice to Leia and kisses her on the forehead. On the other hand, he doesn't actually touch Kylo. He doesn't make footprints in the salt ground of the of crate. He uses. Original blue lightsaber, which has been destroyed earlier in the film. Either way, the interstellar projection is so difficult and draining, it seems like it contributes to his death. Another interesting note, Leia leaves behind Han's dice, which is how Kylo finds them. Although they did disappear in his hand, this is presumably because she knew they weren't real, and that Luke wasn't actually there. Another question is, since Leia survives, how will her role be handled in Episode Nine? This is another question that I have. Because um, you, it almost thought, like within that first half hour of the movie when the TIE fighters blow up the bridge of the spaceship that Leia's on and she gets blasted onto space, I thought, oh, wow, is that really how they're going to send off Leia? Is that going to be the end of her story? Did they have that plan from the beginning and that's why they didn't worry about having to change episode nine at all? And then we got that interesting force moment where she, Mary Poppins herself back, like I talked about earlier. So we kind of see that now she's there. Maybe if there's a time jump, we'll see that... Uh, maybe something happened. Maybe she succumbed to actually being in space after all, and she doesn't make it much past where we saw her in episode eight. And they have to deal with the ramifications of her loss and the future of the resistance. Um, the question is: Will Luke appears a Force Ghost in episode nine? I certainly hope so. In the original trilogy, we saw that Obi Wan appeared to Luke. Uh, over all three movies helping guide him along and I'm hoping that's the same way for Rey in episode 9 so Jedi can talk to each other across the galaxy now as we saw in the movie there was a connection a force connection between Rey and Kylo that was implanted by Snoke supposedly but still seemed to last after his death so we'll kind of see if that becomes a further issue or what they do with that in 9 and moving forward and it seems to be Maybe if two people are strong in the Force, they can form some kind of mental link or psychic link to be able to communicate. Um, some of these we've already answered in the other article. Um, I guess one of the sad things is, why doesn't anyone answer the Resistance distress call? So when they get to that base, they have enough power to send a distress signal from Leia's personal code to their allies on the Outer Rim to basically say, we need help, please send everyone you can. And then it turns out to say that there's the messages have been received, but no one has responded, which means like they heard you, but they don't have hope that they can survive and that this can all move forward. Um, Leia's explanation is that the galaxy has lost hope, and that's as good as answer as any. Were the resistance predicament probably spread across the galaxy, and allies probably felt their defeat was inevitable. It's cowardly, but understandable. Uh, another question is, are we getting a Ray finn rose love triangle? 
I'm still not shipping Ray and Finn or Finn and Rose. I don't think these movies need an overarching love story to really work. Um, there wasn't really much one established. I mean, we kind of had the off and between Luke and Leia, or not Luke and Leia, sorry, Han and Leia uh, towards the end of the original trilogy, and we saw how many people didn't like the love story between uh, Anakin and Padme in the prequel trilogy. So I'm fine with there not being any overarching. They're just friends. Can we just leave it at that? That's kind of how I feel. Um, another big character death from the original trilogy was Admiral Akbar dying in the same situation that looked like it was going to kill Leia. And all he got after that was his name being individualized when he died in that scene following Leia's survival. Um, another one is Captain Phasma dead. I know between Force Awakens and The Last Jedi, we've only seen maybe 10 minutes of Phasma. We just got to see her face, or at least part of her face, in Last Jedi, but it looks like she's dead. I know they kind of Shifter as being the next uh, Boba Fett, but we don't know what's going to be more of her character if she comes back. I know they even released a book dedicated to her, so it seems crazy that she's gotten so little screen time and was kind of eliminated pretty quickly. So maybe with the armor, maybe she still is able to survive being falling into that uh, explosion of fire. So we'll kind of have to see if we see her in 9 or see some version of her. Um, there's a couple other questions. Um, I guess the big one was, are Ray's parents really no one? Are they no one of consequence, or does she literally have no parents? Even though Kylo Ren tells Ray that her parents are basically nobodies, the debate that started with The Force Awakens is sure to rage on. On one hand, the idea of Ray's parents works an insignificant drunk fits in, fits in not just with the end of this movie, but with Luke and Yoda's earlier assertions that the Jedi must end. However, the cave on Octu shows Ray that Ray's parents are Ray. That's probably nothing, but it does add some fuel to fires of another immaculate midichlorian conception or cloning theories. But if you're honest thinking, Kylo Ren was telling the truth. Ray was a young girl sold by her poor parents, and those parents are now dead. And that doesn't matter at all, because anyone can have the ability to use the Force, and anyone can be a hero. Which I think is probably the main story, the main lesson of The Last Jedi was that, that's true, anyone can be a hero. You don't need a destiny or groundwork laid by your parents or your ancestors to guide you on a path it can be anyone and i think that's the real story so really this it might have set up a new hope for the resistance moving forward and i really enjoyed the last Jedi. i'm probably going to see it a third time before it leaves theaters and it'll definitely add to my collection and if we do inevitably get with the disney fox merge if we do get a chance to collect all of the theatrical runs of all nine Star Wars films in one convenient box set. I will that'll have all my money, and I look forward to watching those. Because when I watched the other movies in the machete order leading up to Last Jedi, I really hated the amount of effects they added and CGI characters and all that to the original trilogy, just as touch-ups. I would really love to see a despecialized true to theatrical release version that's just remastered in blue to look good on blu-ray or maybe a 4k or whatever we end up having at the time so i kind of went a lot about a lot of articles and it was a lot of me reading and kind of sharing my own opinions but that's the poor report i talk about news and topics of personal interest and that's really what this week was uh i have some interesting stuff planned for the rest of the year with uh two more episodes until uh our feature week 
And then with um, 2018, we'll kind of see the direction the show takes. But I've had some ideas and I'll probably talk about it in episode 18. So I want to thank you all for listening. You can follow me on at The Poor Report on all the social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. I've been trying to put out more content on those uh, three pieces. You can listen to us at uh, com. If you want to get exclusive content... Then you'll hear about from some of the other shows on the network, and I've put some stuff out there. If you go to patreon.com slash journey into comics, if you pay $1, you get early access to all the shows once they're available. Over $3, you get access to this bonus content. So I encourage you to do that. Um, you can follow us on a lot of the podcasting apps. I personally use CastBox, so that's what I would recommend. I use it for all the shows. And it actually kind of neat. When I was looking for reviews of The Last Jedi, to kind of I like to hear other people's opinions to see if kind of gives me more validation for my own i was able to find some more shows i liked just by searching the last jedi and under episodes and getting a lot of new podcasts that i wanted to check out so here's your cast or all the other social media sites uh listen to all other shows uh jic um talked about the last jedi and that fell yesterday um i'm on the foodies episode because i'm obviously a co-host of foodies so you can listen to that tomorrow and the rest of the shows like podcastrophy uh, Voice of Survival, uh, Bruise with Dudes, Literature, Butt Stuff. Um, just listen to all the shows, Game Max Podcast, everything else. Um, thank you guys. You've always been great. And I encourage you, if you have uh, anything, you can always uh, reach out to me by posting on my page or direct messaging me or DMing me on Twitter. You can do whatever you want to get a hold of me. If you have ideas or comments or feedback, I'm open to all of that. So with that, I will close out the show. Thank you again, everyone, and have a great week.